0: You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, uh, back to the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 1 again today. Uh, This time we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 8. So turn there if you would, and as you do, uh, let me pray for our time this morning. Father, I am excited to study this passage today uh, because some of the the wonderful truths that are contained uh, in this passage, I'm excited to see what all it has to, to teach us. Um, I do pray, Father, that you would just give everyone in this room just the ability to focus on these truths over the next 30 minutes. Uh, help us just set aside any distractions we might have. Uh, help us wake up. Uh, help us just stay engaged to see what you have in store for us so that in return we might just seek to apply these truths to our lives. I ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So hear from the words of the Lord this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has already served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all of the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, So if you have ever read the last uh, chapters of Acts, then you know uh, when Paul was taken as a prisoner to Rome, uh, he and the soldiers that escorted him, uh, they were stranded at sea on their way. And then they were shipwrecked on an island called Malta. While they were there, Paul was even bitten by a poisonous viper. And then somehow after Paul survived all of those ordeals and he made it to Rome, he was then chained to a Roman guard and placed under house arrest until he could be tried, convicted, and executed He was literally attached to a soldier, uh, both day and night, and he would never be a free man again. Yet, despite all of that, Paul was still able to write things like he did in verse 18 of our text today, saying, I rejoice. I just, just let that sink in. Paul's world was literally uh, collapsing around him. And yet, despite all of that, he says, I rejoice. In fact, by my count, uh, the words joy and rejoice are said by Paul 16 different times over the course of the four chapters that make up this little letter. And hearing about Paul's joy In the midst of so much frustration that he faced, uh, it's kind of like finding a flower that is blooming out of a slab of concrete. I mean, if you were walking the streets of a large city and you looked down and coming up out of the cracks of the sidewalk, you saw this daisy growing there, you'd probably stop for a moment and, and stare. Concrete's clearly not the best soil for... Uh, a flower to take root in, uh, and and if there's people walking all around, you you may be wondering how in the world that that flower didn't get stepped on and just smashed out of existence. that's how strange Paul's joy really is, all right? He's the happiest man in all of Rome, even while on death row. So today, we're gonna look at this passage to discover the key to Paul's joy, in order to see how we might find a deeper sense of joy uh, in our own lives as well. So in these verses, we're going to talk about uh, finding joy despite difficult circumstances, uh, finding joy despite discouraging people, and then we're going to talk about how Jesus is the key uh, to doing both. So first, let's talk about finding joy uh, despite difficult circumstances. Uh, and, And as I've been saying, Paul was incarcerated in Rome while he was writing this letter to the Philippians. And this really could have been a discouraging time for that church back in Philippi because Paul was the founder of their church. He's the one that Uh, came there in the first place and preached the gospel to them. Uh, So Paul's imprisonment could have made the gospel uh, appear very weak. Paul was in chains, so he couldn't go about freely and preach the gospel like he once did. So there, there could have been this fear felt by the Philippians that this new Jesus movement was already beginning to fizzle out. I mean, it had started like wildfire and it started to spread, but if all of its leaders are just being imprisoned, then this uh, movement may appear to be, you know, being extinguished before it even really begins. And also, there was a basic belief in Paul's day that Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. So for some, Paul's imprisonment might have even appeared to be God's judgment on him for preaching a false religion. I mean, if Paul was truly an apostle of God, well, surely God wouldn't have allowed one of his own faithful servants to suffer the kind of hardships that Paul was now facing. But Paul writes to his readers to assure them that that's not actually the case. It's actually the opposite that is true. This gospel movement isn't getting ready to lose momentum, and this isn't the Lord's punishment on Paul. It was actually God's plan all along. That's why Paul says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying uh, him being in chains isn't actually hindering the mission of God. It's actually helping it. And it's helping in two ways. It's there to serve both the pagans and the people of God. In other words, it's helping both the unbelievers and the believers alike. Uh, So first, it's serving to help the pagans of the Roman Empire, particularly the Roman soldiers. That's why Paul says in verse 13 that the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So in the first century, uh, when you're a... Uh, when your prisoner is a Roman citizen like Paul, who is becoming a pretty prominent and influential figure in this growing religious movement, Uh, many times uh, prisoners like that, they they would be allowed to just be placed under house arrest rather than being thrown away in a jail cell somewhere, kind of like Paul um, when, when he was in Philippi. So Paul, this time, he wasn't in a jail cell, he was under house arrest, uh, but that didn't actually mean that any, uh, you know, any of this was going to be easier on him, uh, because what they typically did, if you were under house arrest, uh, in order to make sure that you couldn't escape, uh, Paul literally would have been chained to a Roman guard 24-7, And there would have been a whole rotation of guards taking shifts, shackling themselves to Paul, making sure that he doesn't get away. But from Paul's perspective, he's not chained to those guards as much as those guards are actually chained to him. Paul literally has a captive audience in which he gets to share the gospel To The the entirety of the guards shift. I mean, I can just imagine Paul sitting there, you know, writing letters all day like he did to all the different churches that he started. And I can just imagine him reading some of those letters out loud, uh, maybe even really loud so the guards uh, can hear it. And I can just imagine him looking over to the guard as he's writing some of these words and just making sure that they are listening. And I'm sure that all of those guarding Paul heard hours and hours of conversation that he had with his fellow Christians and missionaries that came to visit him. So much of the Roman imperial guards, they were being exposed to the gospel in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise if Paul hadn't been imprisoned. And if you really want proof of how successful uh, Paul's new prison ministry was, you can read the very last words of this letter. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 21, we're actually told, uh, Paul says there, that the brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, you should do a double take when you read those last words. You know, the saints or or the Christians in Caesar's own household send their greetings to that church back in Philippi. Now, obviously, it wasn't Caesar himself or his immediate family that would have been going to hang out with Paul. No, likely what he's talking about is Caesar's soldiers. We're talking about what was the equivalent to Rome's version of the secret service. Either those soldiers had become Christians while guarding Paul, or maybe they had heard the gospel through the grapevine from other soldiers who had been guarding Paul. But either way, it's clear that God is using Paul's imprisonment to transform the Roman Empire from the inside out. In a very short time, the gospel has already made its way to the very household of Caesar, the one governing the largest, most powerful empire in the whole world. And seeing that is cause for Paul to rejoice. But Paul's imprisonment It isn't only serving uh, to share the gospel with the pagans. It's also serving to encourage the people of God as well. That's why Paul says in verse 14 that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's willingness to face suffering caused other believers to become more confident. They still understood that sharing their faith was dangerous, would likely end up with them being in prison just like Paul. Uh, But if Paul thought that imprisonment was worth the risk, then his example was causing other people to believe the same. So his boldness while in prison Uh, what was giving them the boldness that they needed to preach the gospel, even if it risked uh, their own freedom. So Paul's arrest served uh, both to help the unbelievers and the believers alike. Uh, It was an encouragement uh, to both the Roman pagans and to the people of God. Uh, But as we think about that, uh, what should be our takeaway? Well, first, um, I just want to make it clear Uh, that I'm not saying that you ought to find joy in those kinds of difficult circumstances uh, in in and of themselves. I mean, we all must walk through uh, dark seasons of our lives. So I'm not suggesting that we ought to pretend that those trials themselves are somehow filled with any kind of joy in and of themselves because they're clearly not Rather, this passage, what it's teaching you is how we ought to find joy in how God might use those circumstances for your good and for his glory and for the advancement of his gospel, which which means that sometimes uh, the kind of joy that we're talking about here might still come with a few tears. You, you may still cry sometimes as you endure through these certain trials, like when you or a loved one uh, face a medical crisis or a financial crunch or some catastrophe of another kind. You, you may still shed tears in those moments, but you can still simultaneously uh, find a, a sensation of joy as well, knowing that. God can use what you're facing to point others to the gospel of Christ. Frustration and happiness are not mutually uh, exclusive feelings. Sometimes sorrow and joy will be mixed and intermingled together. But because of how God can use those uh, tragic experiences, then those circumstances that you face don't need to... be filled exclusively with sorrow or or sadness. There can be a presence of joy uh, within them as well. So you can find joy uh, despite difficult circumstances. Not that your joy comes from those circumstances, uh, but you can have joy in in seeing how God might use those circumstances to further his kingdom. But the second thing I want to focus on is finding joy joy despite discouraging people because for some of you it's not the circumstances that you face that are the greatest hindrances to your happiness you can face trials of many kinds and you can still somehow have a positive outlook on life so difficult circumstances may not be your biggest obstacles for some of you it's discouraging people And in uh, verses 15 through 18, Paul describes two kinds of people that he often encountered in his ministry. Verse 15, he says that some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, while others preach Christ from good will, that they preach out of love, while the former just do it out of selfish ambition. So some people were preaching the gospel with good intentions, while others were preaching it with ill intentions. And to both of those groups, notice what Paul says, to both of those groups, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That's a wonderful perspective to have on ministry. If there had been Facebook or Twitter or any kind of you know social media in Paul's day, uh, he would not have spent all day scrolling through those feeds, trying to tear others down or just complaining about others' motives. He would have simply said, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Now, I do want to make it clear that that isn't to say that we shouldn't ever call out false teachers. Uh, we should uh, when people like Joel Olstein or Joyce Myers, T.D. Jakes, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, just to, to name a few. When, when people like that are preaching a gospel message that contradicts the gospel of Jesus, we have a right to call them out for their false teachings because they're leading others astray. But, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about those who are teaching false gospels. He's talking about those who are preaching Christ's gospel with false motives. So the key then to finding joy despite discouraging people is who are selfishly motivated is realizing that God can use those even with questionable motives just as much as he can use those with honorable intentions. God can advance his kingdom and advance the gospel just as easily through both ill will and good will. So let me just give you some examples. When someone you know Drops money into the offering plate, but you know that they're just doing it for all of the wrong reasons. Uh, they're just doing it uh, to, you know, so other other people will will look, you know, favorably upon them, uh, and just talk about how generous they are. Uh, when people give money for all of the wrong reasons, it's okay. Don't pull the money out of the plate and try to force it back into their hands. Uh, Just rejoice that despite their selfishness, God can still use their shallow motivations for genuine good. Even if their motives were wrong, their money can still be used for God-honoring ministry in the church. Or let me give you another example. When someone you know is a hypocrite, They don't at all practice what they preach. Don't discount how God might still use the words that they speak. Even if an atheist were to read a passage from the Bible, and even though maybe the only reason he even opens up the Bible and reads from the Bible is just in an attempt to mock Christians and our God. God's word is still so powerful that if he wanted to, he could still use those words to win somebody to Christ. To to prove that, all you have to do is remember that the most successful prophet in the Old Testament was Jonah. Jonah half-heartedly spoke five words to a city full of hostile pagans and 120,000 people still got saved. Jonah didn't even want the Ninevites to be saved. He wanted them to be punished. So when he asked them to repent, he genuinely hoped that they wouldn't repent. And yet God still used Jonah despite of himself. And he brought about a citywide revival in what had been (coughs) one of the most corrupt and wicked cities on earth. So don't let yourself be discouraged by the discouraging people around you. Don't let them steal your joy from you. Don't let your joy be a lost casualty of war. Because God can still use your difficult circumstances to advance the gospel, and he can also use discouraging people to advance the gospel as well. So in that, we should rejoice. But lastly this morning, before we go, I just want to show you one more thing, and it's important. I want you to see how Jesus is the key to being able to find joy, um, both uh, when you're confronted with difficult circumstances and discouraging people. To see that, um, I want you to flip over in your Bibles to Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 2. And and the reason we're doing this is because when Paul says, I rejoice in verse 18 of Philippians chapter 1, what he's doing is he's actually modeling his life after the life of Christ. When Paul seeks to find joy despite uh, difficulties and discouragement, he does so because that's actually what Jesus did. So Jesus is where Paul learned this from. Jesus is his example. So let me read to you Hebrews 12, verse 2. This is what it says about the kind of joy that Jesus had. The author of Hebrews says that all of us should look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so how was Jesus able to endure the nails that pierced through his hands and feet? How was he able to withstand the, that crown of thorns being smashed down upon his brow. This is one of those passages that it just blows me away every time I read it because the author of Hebrews says that he was able to endure all of those things because of the joy that was set before him. And that verse, man, that, that is a, a difficult verse to wrap your minds around Because every time I read an account of the crucifixion, I just want to say, where is the joy in that? I mean, being whipped and beaten is not fun. Being mocked and spat on, that's not exactly pleasant. Being executed is not what I would call the start to a good day. But here is where you see the key to discovering genuine Christ-like joy. The source of it doesn't actually come from your circumstances or any of the people that are surrounding you. It must be rooted in nothing else but God. Jesus's joy as he endured the cross came from knowing that when all was said and done, he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of his father and that he would hear the words from his father, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus's joy came from knowing that because of the crucifixion, there would one day be a great multitude that could worship the Lord around his throne because they had all been saved through the blood of the lamb. So that's the key to finding joy. <clears throat> it's Jesus. If he was able to endure such unimaginable horrors, far beyond anything that you or I will ever face. And if he was able to endure them, not just with joy, but because of the joy that he had rooted in God, if he can do that, then through him, we can too. Jesus understood the key to finding joy. And so did Paul. And we can find that as well. So when the doctor tells you that the prognosis isn't good or your a bank, bank account is empty and you're not sure how you're gonna feed your family when your car refuses to start again, no, no matter the difficult circumstances, you can still find joy if your joy is rooted in Jesus. When you and your spouse have another fight, You receive another angry call or a text message from a disgruntled family member, or when your coworkers just want to make you pull your hair out, no matter how discouraging the people around you may be, you can still find joy if your joy is rooted in Jesus. And to end uh, this morning, I just want to uh, quote to you uh, some of the lyrics that we sang Uh, from a song earlier. I think this will help just put things into perspective. Uh, But we sang the song, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, beautiful, amazing hymn. And I particularly appreciate the third verse where it says, um, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. I know that's not language that we use in our modern setting. You may be asking yourself, you know, what in the world is a fetter? Uh, All a fetter is, is, is just a chain. When we talk about Paul's imprisonment, Paul was fettered to a Roman guard. And he rejoiced because of that. Because it meant the guards couldn't escape Paul as he preached the gospel to them. As I said, it wasn't that he was fettered to the guards as much as those guards were fettered to him. I love just thinking about it from that perspective. But for you and I, God's grace is also like a fetter. Through the spilled blood of Jesus, our wandering hearts can now be shackled and bound to the Lord. If you would just submit your life to him, and when you look at those unbreakable uh, chains that link you to God, a, a chain that not even death can break and which no sin could ever separate, man, there can be no other response to that than to have joy in the gospel that can restore your relationship with your master and maker. In, in no circumstances, in no person this side of heaven can keep you from finding and holding on to that joy if that joy is rooted in Jesus. Because he is the one alone that holds the key to that genuine joy. Let me pray. Father, um, I know there are a lot of people in this room right now who probably came into this sanctuary this morning, who don't feel an overwhelming sense of joy today. There are too many trials and obstacles going on that we're all facing. There are too many discouraging things sometimes to find much that is encouraging in life. But now that we have seen that Jesus is ultimately the key to finding our joy I pray that each and every one of us would leave this sanctuary holding on to that joy that we can have in Christ. We might not have, have come into this room with it, but I pray that we would leave with it. Because if Jesus was able to face even the horrors of the cross, not just with joy, but because of the joy that was set before him, then, then if we are, uh, if, if our trust and hope is in him, well, surely that that through him, we can endure whatever life throws our way and we can endure it with joy because of Christ. So I just ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name, amen.